Welcome to episode one of Far From This Film Star with me, Ethan Beller, and my co-host. That's you. You gotta you gotta announce yourself. Oh, and uh day two blood. <laughs> I could not hear you over that music. I got way too into it. Okay, well we'll we'll, well you know what? First one, let's keep it going. Um so, uh, first episode of Far From a Film Scholar, we're doing a app uh, on the Dogma 95 movement, which was a Danish film movement uh, that made these really experimental, uh, eccentric films uh, in the mid-1990s. And uh, it's going to be the first of many, uh, hopefully. But uh, first, we're going to tell you a little bit about us and... Uh, and hopefully educate you a bit on the films themselves. So if you want to go first, JT. Yeah, I'll go first. I am, uh, I'm JT Wood. I've, uh, I've always been interested in film and filmmaking, but I, uh, I attended the Art Institute of Atlanta, but I did not graduate. So I'm an art school dropout. So I did like a semester or two there, but I still have a huge appreciation for uh, filmmaking. So this is the reason why I want to keep doing it, like to keep up with this so I can keep learning about it. Uh, And yeah, it's mostly it. All right, your turn, Ethan. Uh, Yeah, so I ended up, uh, I'm a graduate of Franklin and Marshall University uh, with a film and media degree. So I ended up going to film school at a liberal arts school that was not particularly known for their uh, film education. I had a few great professors there, but uh, gone on, continued to try and make some more independent films and everything, uh, independent music videos, stuff like that. Um, And uh, hopefully this can help both us and the audience grow while we we make this podcast and learn about uh, film history and film movements. So, with that out of the way, um, for those who don't know, the Dogma 95 movement is created by two directors, Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinneberg. Uh, they were both Danish, and they both came out of the Danish film school, uh, which is, uh, Denmark's a pretty small country, but it's one of the most prestigious film schools in uh, Denmark, obviously, and uh, Vinneberg was one of the youngest people to ever, he was the only person accepted, and I think also the youngest to graduate from Danish film school, whereas Vinterberg was a, excuse me, whereas Von Trier was a relatively well-established director at the time for this art film circuit, and had gone on to tour at a few international art, art uh, film festivals, Berlin, Cannes, and such. Um, but in 1995, they ended up getting together and deciding to publish a manifesto uh, intending to upend the world of film, which they found still with this Hollywood sense of the 90s, these big blockbuster films filled with VFX, much like today's Marvel films. We had Terminator and Titanic and uh, 
I don't know why I went to James Cameron with both of those, but uh, a lot of these big blockbuster films that uh, definitely were heavy on the VFX work and action scenes and all this stuff, something which they found kind of disgusting as uh, filmmakers. Um, but, shit, you different dad. Uh, so, the Dogma Manifesto uh, is a collection of film directors founded in Copenhagen in spring of 1995. Dogma 95 has expressed goals in encountering certain tendencies in the cinema today. Dogma is a rescue action. In 1960, enough was enough. The movie was dead and called for reassurance. The goal was correct, and, but the means were not. The new wave provided to be a ripple that washed ashore and turned to muck. Slogans of indi individualism and freedom created work for a while, but no change. The wave was up from grabs, like the direction from themselves. The wave was never stronger than the, man than the men behind it. The anti-cinema uh, anti itself became... Uh, sorry... Uh, become because the foundations upon which its theories were based was uh, I can't even, I don't even know this word <laughs> uh, or bourgeoisie bourgeoisie uh, perception of art the alter concept was bourgeoisie romanticism from the very start. Uh, yeah, my bad, Ethan. My bad. Uh, to dogma, cinema is not individual. Today, a techno technical... I don't know. Ethan, I'm fucking... <laughs> I'm stumbling over this. <laughs> okay. You want to retake it from the top, or you want me to do it? Uh, will you do it? I'm so sorry. I can, sure. uh, I can do the... No, you're good, man. I can do the rules. You know what I mean? I'm so okay. sorry. What's we'll that on? Okay. No worries. Um, good way to figure out if we can edit these in post anyway. Yeah. Ooh, Mark Clip. Yes, you can. Clip created from Marker. Okay. Um, so, uh, in about 45 minutes in 1995, early 1995, spring, Lars von Schreer and Thomas sat down over drinks and came up with the Dogma 95 Manifesto, which they wrote out and published in a little red book, rem, rem, reminiscent of this little red book a few decades earlier, obviously intending to upset the market as it was. Their manifesto goes as follows. Dogma 95 is a collection of film directors founded in Copenhagen in spring 1985. Dogma 95 has the expressed goal of countering certain tendencies in cinema today. Dogma 95 is a rescue actor. In 1960, enough was enough. The movie was dead and called for resurrection. The goal was correct, but the means were not. The new wave proved to be a ripple that washed ashore and turned to muck. Slogans of individualism and freedom created works for a while, but no changes. The wave was up for grab, like the directors themselves. The wave was stronger than the men behind it. The anti-bourgeoisie cinema itself became bourgeois because the foundations upon its theory were based was the bourgeois perception of art. 
the Artur concept was bourgeois romanticism from the very start, and their are false. To Dog in 95, cinema is not individual. Today, a technological storm is raging, the result of which will be the ultimate dem democratization of the cinema. The first time anyone can make movies, but the more accessible the medium becomes, the more important the avant-garde. It's no accident that the phrase avant-garde has military connotations. Discipline is the answer. We must put our films into uniform because the individual film will be decadent by definition. Dogma 95 counters the individual by the very principle of presenting an indisputable set of rules, known as the vow of chastity. In 1960, enough was enough. The movie has been cosmetized into death. Yet since then, the use of cosmetics has exploded. The supreme task of the decadent filmmaker is to fool the audience. Is that what we're so proud of? Is that what the hundred years have brought us? Illusions by which emotions can be communicated by the individual artist, free choice of trickery? Predictability, dramaturgy, has become the golden calf around which we dance. Having the character's inner lives justify the plot is too complicated and not high art. As never before, the superficial action and the superficial movie are receiving all praise. The result is barren, an illusion of pathos and an illusion of love. Dogma 95, the movie is not illusion. Today, a technical, technological storm is raging, of which the result is the elevation of cosmetics to God. By using technology, anyone at any time can wash the last grains of truth away in a deadly embrace of sensation. The illusions are everything the movie can hide behind. Dogma 95 counters the powers of illusion by presentation of an indisputable set of rules known as the vow of chastity. So, as you can imagine, this was uh, pretty upsetting for the people in the, and please excuse my French here, La Cinema Vergeon d'Uxmi, Cécile conference in Paris, where Lars Venture was invited to speak, and instead got up in the middle of it, which you can find video of online, and threw out this manifesto into the crowd of film critics and film aficionados and filmmakers, and basically tried to upset the social order. Um, JT is going to tell you guys about the uh, rules which they did end up instituting both in their own films and which they uh, presumed to create for the Dogma 95 movement. So a couple of these rules were shooting must be done on locations. Props and sets must not be brought in. The sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. The camera must be handheld. The film must be in color. Obstacle work or filters are forbidden. The film must not contain superficial action. Um, geographical. Oh, fuck. Temporal and geographical aliens. Okay, what was it? Sorry. Temporal and geographical alienation. Say it. Sorry, bro. I'm sorry. I keep slipping. You're good. Uh, temporal, temporal and, and geographical alienation. Okay. Temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. Genre movies are not acceptable. The film format must be Academy 35mm. The, the director must not be credited. So basically going through these, 
the Dogma 95 films were meant to be very representative of a real style of filmmaking, whatever that might be, kind of harkening back to uh, the original essence of filmmaking as the Lumiere's viewed it. Uh, you know, film people coming out of a factory, but in this one, they made everything shot on location, as it says, uh, and found on location. There's a prop and sets you can't do these budget things where you bring everything in the temporal and geographical alienation as it's discussed really just means that the film has to say where and when it takes place and that that place is here and now it doesn't happen in the future and it doesn't happen in some place remote in order to add some air mystique the camera being handheld makes the audience feel as if they're in the place that's going on. There isn't the stabilization in these beautiful movements, although much of the movement is very beautiful. The sound never being produced apart from the images, again, is another fact that um, creates a sense of intimacy with the filmmaking itself. You don't film must be in color, uh, pretty obviously there, uh, it must be in color, this is because it made it, what they were shooting on was these small handheld cameras that were in color, um, I think that really is most of it, but it was also because they had to use natural lighting for the most part, although they mess around with that as well, um, and the genre movie, in fact the genre movies are it's trying to get away from the traditional script. The film format must be Academy 35, another regulation to put in themselves, and the director must not be credited. Trying to, as they discuss above in our manifesto, uh, remove the personal from the film itself. I'm going to add a little addendum that was at the bottom of the rules, the vow of chastity. That furthermore, I swear as a director to refrain from personal taste. I'm no longer an artist. I swear to refrain from creating a work as I regard the instant as more important than the whole. My supreme goal is to force the truth out of characters and settings. I swear to do so by all means available and at the cost of any good taste and any aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. Monday, March 13th, 1995. So, that bit of film history was made, you know, in a sense. Uh, I think it's interesting about these rules from my perspective is that a lot of people consider Dogma 95 films because of their very uh, essence of being made on somewhat of a smaller budget, being shot on location, being shot with these cheaper digital cameras uh, as really low budget, uh, amateurish affair. But uh, both these men were graduates from a top film school. These men had made films before. And in fact, all of the original uh, dog filmmakers ended up being four 
additional to join these two, uh, not counting some who dropped out in between the publishing of the manifesto and the actual creation of films. All of them were relatively well established filmmakers who wanted to test themselves with these rules. Vinnerberg even claimed that uh, the entire point of the rules was to limit yourself as a director and get rid of all the things which you found most important to making a film, thus making it harder and breaking those rules for yourself. Um, but what do you think about the uh, rules, JT? Any uh, considerations um, you got? I like the idea of all the rules, but like how you said to mention that they were both graduated from film school and it isn't as raw as possible. You you know what I'm saying? It's uh Yeah, but what were you gonna say? Go ahead. I I mean I think that's kind of from its very origin it is deeply hypocritical for them to be kind of mocking as they do the French uh, New Wave and talking about the bourgeoisie perception of art and, uh, you know, all this very pretentious uh, criticisms, which are that these artists, you know, became part of the bourgeois when really they're from one of the best film schools in Europe, although pretty small at the time but a very rich country, a very well-off country, and make these art films that tour at the circuits and aren't really made for yeah. audiences at all. I think that's what's fascinating. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree. Um, yeah. And then later we'll talk about it, but most of the time they just kind of went around most of their rules and how they end up Pretty much all of them, all four of them, end up breaking the rules in some sort of way. So, um, just to go off of that, you know, when they published these uh, these rules in this manifesto, it was a big deal in the uh, film circuit, generated a lot of press at the time, but it actually took them about two years to uh, gain any absolution, you know, to actually create these films. Um, it wasn't until about 97, I believe, when most of the films came out, and much of that was due to difficulties attaining uh, approval for funds and difficulties uh, producing these films themselves. relatively cheap films, but Denmark has an interesting uh, situation, much like the NEA grants we have in America. Money. They have a grant specifically for Danish film. And Lars Rancher believed based on personal assurances, which may or may not have been given to him, uh, that he would be the recipient of a what he considered would take up about half the money he needed to make the uh, first round of Danish Dogma 95 films which would be four films. Um, we'll talk about the two other directors that joined them in a moment. But eventually, these personal assurances didn't end up turning out, and each filmmaker had to apply for funds uh, to make these films. And this actually became a pretty big difficulty in making the films because one of the rules of 95, <clears throat> excuse me, the last one, that amendment I uh, 
and before this, the added to the vow of chastity, which is to refrain from personal taste, and thus you have to refrain from all this pre-planning and everything that are often done on films that has to be done on films to submit to film contention for budget assistance from the government. Um, so because of that, it took almost two years to uh, come to fruition after they made this big splash in the art market. Um, but eventually they did. And uh, we were going to read at one point, uh, Lars Venture ended up typing up a poem, which was extremely, extremely funny, mm-hmm. at least in uh, my opinion. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have it on us at the moment. We might add we it definitely in, should add see, uh, in post. How this sounds at the end. We should add it. <laughs> okay, so look forward to that. You guys will be hearing that now. Um, anyway, um, once we got the money together, they ended up making what was uh, Thomas Vinterberg's first big budget film after he graduated. He had made a previous television movie before. Um, but he was very young at the time, I believe in his 20s, um, early 20s. And he made his first film, which became The Celebration and came out in 1998, three years after they officially announced the creation of Dogma 95 um, and was a massive success. Uh, really established Dogma 95 and Winneberg and Funcher as kind of revolutionaries major filmmakers on the art market. It was a Danish entry for best uh, foreign language film at 71st Academy Awards, although not a nominee, it should have been. Um, and it won the Cannes Film Festival, the Grand Jury Prize, the Cannes Film Festival, which is one of the most prestigious film awards that, uh, that exist in the world, along with the Golden Bear and the Oscars. Um, so, um, by the way, just to mention, because I think it's interesting, um, the year that uh, Festin was, or Celebration, was nominated, but didn't end up earning a nomination for the Academy Awards, Life is Beautiful by Roberto Benigni ended up winning. And uh, the other nominees that were accepted were Tango by Carlos Sora, The Grandfather by Jose Luis Garcia, Children of Heaven, movie I actually very much like, uh, which is a rain film by Mahidi, uh, and Central Station by Walter Sales. Um, kind of hate Life is Beautiful, but we'll go off on that in another rant, maybe another episode. Um, anyway, JT, yeah, you want to talk about uh, the celebration? Uh, so, to recap how this is the one film that Ethan and I sat down and watched together from the Dogma 95. So, when I went into it, I had no idea what it was about. So it's about a man who's having his 60th birthday party and he invites all his coworkers and family and everybody very close to him. And so one of his children you find out has committed suicide and her twin brother is battling with this the whole time. And throughout the beginning of the movie, you start to see that it's really affecting him. He hasn't been home much. And then he lets out this secret to everybody at this dinner party. 
Um, what I thought was really interesting about the dinner party is that, that, you know, Thomas, he didn't tell any of the other actors what was going on. So their real reaction was in that movie that they were just kind of shocked and continued to just mingle between one another. And, um, and it just dives more deeper into that throughout the whole movie. But um, what do you got to say? Yeah, I think um, like you talk about the, the way they shot that film is uh, really fascinating to me, particularly uh, what we discussed with sound all being recorded uh, possibly, um at the same time. So every time they delivered that speech and the shots, reaction shots, you had to have the lead actor turn that speech again. And I really do think that Oliver Thompson mm-hmm. gives an amazing performance. Uh, it's really what holds that film together. Um, uh, Hennig Mortsen, who plays his father, and Thomas Rolarsen, who plays his erratic brother, are also both amazing. And uh, Paprika Steen. Don't know the rest of the actors' names, so excuse me for not phrasing them, but they are also great. But um, every time that that they return to a reaction shot, I think it's so interesting that Ulrich Thompson has to give this speech again and again, and uh, they shut those first scenes where people are reacting first, which makes them more vulnerable and more surprised and have these bright faces. Um, but uh, it's a very heavy film, but I also think it's incredibly funny. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the reason it's so funny is because of Thomas Vinnerberg's relationship with a lot of these, uh, a lot of these actors, um, especially given that he'd written the script, but uh, he had really refused to give too much specific direction to the individual actors thinking that it would kind of ruin their performance. Um, but he had worked with both Thomas Bollarsson and Ulrich Thompson, who again are the first two brothers, and Paprika Steen, who plays the sister. He worked with them all before on his previous film, um, The Biggest Heroes, which was the first film that he did when he graduated from college. And so he had this personal relationship with them. And uh, he ends up working with uh, Thomas Berlarsen much later on in uh, Another Round, which came out last year. Uh, and uh, I believe he worked with Ulrich uh, Thompson again on some other films uh, that I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, um, the personal relationship that he has with all these actors makes this film incredibly, incredibly interesting and unique. And you kind of feel the relationship that these characters to have to each other because they are supposed to be this very dysfunctional family and that only works particularly with this limited direction if you have an intimacy and a familiarity with your siblings as they are uh, beforehand um, but I also think again not to get too far distracted the, the pre-production planning for this film really fascinating you know I had um, an interview with uh, Vinnerberg where he talked about working with the cinematographer Anthony Dodd-Mantle who also was the cinematographer for Lars von Trier's, many of Lars von Trier's films 
Um, although I don't believe he is the cinematographer for um, The Idiots, which was Lars Venture's Dogma 95 film. He was he ended up being the cinematographer for Julian Donkey Boy, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, anyway, he's a very talented cinematographer, and anyone who knows cinematography knows that there's a ridiculous amount of pre-production that goes into that uh, that art form. Um, and limiting that completely is kind of what Dharma 95 is about, all this pre-production and everything. So he ended up talking and saying that him and Anthony Donahue would ride the one hour it took to get to this very uh, grandiose mansion where they shot the film. Another kind of funny thing, given that uh, it's supposed to be on such a tight budget to shoot it on this big, huge mansion. Um, and during that one hour, they would work together and do pre-production for that day. And after that one hour, they could talk about it no more. Those are the rules that he set for himself. It's just an early example of even in the first film, even before they got to the editing room or whatever, while they still tried to stick to it, some point they were already breaking the rules because they had to, and it worked out for them for the better. But he really is breaking his rules of not putting any of his own directorial uh, emphasis on it just by talking with a cinematographer in the beginning of the day. And by writing a script, he already knew what he wanted to write a script about. That's some directorial influence. Um, but I think we can talk about uh, a little bit more examples of their hypocritical uh, usage of their directorial role later on. Um, do you want to uh, move on to our next... Yeah. Yeah, uh, we definitely can. Do you want to talk JT. about the uh, the King is Alive, or do you want to talk about uh, the Idiots? Let's okay. go in order. So we'll talk about the Idiots for a second, um, and then we'll move on to the King is Alive. Um, so, like I said, we're talking about the first four uh, movies made for the Dog of 95 mantle, um, and there are about 30, I believe, other films. We only had the opportunity to watch the first, uh, three of the first four. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find Mifune's last song, uh, which is Soren Crowd Jacobson's film. But I did watch The Idiots, and JT watched The King is Alive. So, the celebration, Festin, was Dogma 1. Can see you have a somewhat uh, famous or infamous, depending on your opinion of the dogma group in general, uh, title card that they place in front of their films, which lists all four uh, directors that became the dogma council that being Lars von Trier, Thomas Vinnerberg, uh, uh, oh, Soren Jacobs, or Kristen Levering, and uh, Soren Krajewicz. Um, excuse me. Uh, but the second film was Dogma 95. The second Dogma 95 film was The Idiots. And The Idiots was the Montreal considered the second in his Golden Heart trilogy after Breaking the Waves, which was the film he made in 1996, which was another reason why he was on the uh, 1995 panel in which he threw up his huge uh, manifesto. It actually ended up winning him a 
Academy Award nomination for Emily Watson's performance, um, and also starred Skellen Skarsgård, who uh, you may know if uh, you're a film aficionado. Uh, but The Idiots is a much different film than The Celebration. Uh, well, they're both Dogma 95 films, and they both feature the landmark uh, rules that they instituted for their uh, vows of chastity. It's, it has a much different feel. Runcher was already an extremely experimental uh, filmmaker and ended up uh, really pushing that to here. He, his films like to offend and like to upset the viewer and the this is arguably his most difficult to watch. It's about a group of people that decides to experience enlightenment by trying to find their inner idiot or their inner yeah, their inner idiot by attempting to simulate the life of people with mental disabilities. There's not really a nice way to go about saying this, so we'll keep it that. Um, but he once claimed he shot over 100 hours of film for this, and he has to cut down um, so much. Um, the interesting thing about this film is that it really does violate a lot of the rules of Dogma 95 while still sticking to its gritty narrative in a lot of ways um you know he uses stand-ins to film a sexually explicit scene which both could be argued are kind of violations but both of the rules to have everything happen in location and of the requirement that there be no shocking murders or anything during the uh selection i mean the point of uh the central scene is really to shock and depravity. Um, he purchased items which they used in the film. He experimented a bit with uh, lighting, uh, which Thomas Vanderberg also did, um, although he doesn't admit to it in his confession. It's the other documentary five filmmakers before that's experience. The film also experienced music and with at least the film that is required to get the visualization. Um, and to have the actors drive around it. A lot of those rules were broken that they intended to stick to very strictly, like in the first film. Um, I think the thing that is the through line with both. Lars von Trier's The Idiots and Thomas Minnerberg's um, custom, and I think it's kind of ironic that I refer to each of the films individually, given that they so emphasize the fact that the, the directors are tied to the asset itself, but uh, is that both these films tend to shock the viewer by their very content and their very subject matter that end up being strange and odd intimate in a way. They're not bloody and gory like other shocking things may be. Um, the Idiots was much more controversial than uh, 
Yeah, The King is Alive is by Levering, if I said that right. Yeah, it's by him, and it's about these tourists going off track into the South African desert because the the compass ends up breaking on the driver. So they end up running out of gas, uh, making it perfectly to this abandoned town with this one man. Um, so when they get there, they start to realize, like, how are we going to get out of here, all this stuff, and this one man volunteers to walk his way back and try to find help. And as time goes on, they start realizing that they might be there a lot longer than they were supposed to. Um, so they all start talking to each other, get to know each other a little bit more, they start going a little crazy, and for... There's this one guy there who was a professional actor or, you know, stage performer. And he ends up remembering King Lear. And so he starts to write it out and he starts giving them roles. And as time goes on, they start practicing it. It calms some of them down. But as it goes on, they start losing it. And, uh, yeah, that's basically what it's all about. Uh, with him breaking rules, I was just thinking about that. Um, with him breaking rules was probably very similar to, you said, uh, for the idiots that they rented a car, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they rented, yeah, they, a, they rented a car. They rented a bus. You know, they definitely brought in props because whenever uh, there's one scene, all their food is like these dented cans of uh, carrots, and that's their only way of eating. So that's one way that he broke the rules in uh, his way. But uh, honestly, I I really enjoyed it, but. 
I like the celebration a little bit more. The the plot of the celebration really pulls you in right away. Um, and this one kind of drags out. It, it, you're just basically waiting, like how they are in the movie. Just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting until you know what exactly is going to happen. So, I honestly, I really enjoyed the celebration out of the two movies that I ended up watching from the Dogma movement. Yeah, I agree 100% uh, with what you said. I think that of the films I watched, uh, the celebration was much better. The last time I had watched The Idiots, I was about 16 years old, and I loved it because I found it incredibly offensive, and things that are incredibly offensive are great when you're 16. Um, but rewatching, I found the celebration to be amazing. I loved it. Uh, and uh, I really understood why the movement took on the way it did um but uh speaking of it taking off um we're talking a little bit about the followings that yeah it later um if you want to talk about julian donkey boy for a second yeah one of the first it was american uh, film. i think Corrin? the only american dog Corrin? Film. is that how you say yeah Corrin. um so he was inspired by the Corrin. movement and he was like all right i'm going to make my very own and it is about a man who has schizophrenia, and he impreg- impregnates his sister. And so what What he really wanted to do with this movie is really show people how uh, schizophrenia really is in real life. Uh, because his own uncle dealt with it, and he was very tired of... Um, He was very tired of how people portrayed that in movies. So it ended up, uh, I think this is the only uh, American, like, Dogma 95 movement, right? Uh, It's the only official film that was accepted. Mm -hmm. And uh, who Uh, was the actor in it? Uh, Herzog? Herzog was in it? Yes. Yeah, he plays the... Yeah, you said that uh, Herzog plays the father, Um, I think, right? Yeah, that's pretty much all that goes on in that movie. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a little chaotic, uh, very jumpy, but I think that's exactly what he wanted to do with the movie. Um, It was... trying to think of any rules that he broke. Uh... Probably the director. Uh, what is that? I actually know one. Um, that uh, they used, uh, and I haven't seen the film, but they used oh, yeah. security camera footage yeah. in the film, and it wasn't handheld. And then most of them, really, it's like the props and set. Uh, you know, like they really mess with like the locations and props and sets, even though like. What what was that one story that you were telling me about, uh, Von Cheer? Mm-hmm. Was it uh, that he like pulled out the wire? Was it him? Oh yeah, um, I, I want to give a lot of credit to uh, this documentary uh, that we both watched, uh, at least part of. Um, mm-hmm. but... I watched the whole thing. I'm not sure if you did, JT, but. Uh, the documentary attached to the 
Criterion Collection version of the celebration, which I highly recommend you check out if you can. It might be online somewhere. Um, where they talk to all the directors and show behind the scenes footage and everything. And it's really a fascinating look into the Dog 95 movement itself. But Von Schur at uh, one point wants to light this scene that they're doing in an attic in the idiots. Um, and he can't because they don't have extension cords because bringing, buying extension cords would be buying something for the film and bringing it onto the set. Um, so he has to find a way to do it and then ripping this uh, cord out of a wall, I believe, and like pulling it up to the ceiling to the attic so that they can film this scene, um, which messes, just breaks a different rule, I think is what you're asking. It breaks a different one of the vows uh, of abstinence um, that they promise to follow. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's still pretty entertaining to see these people so attuned to trying to make this perfect rule-following thing to break all this stuff up, but they all intentionally and unintentionally violate each of the rules in their own way. Um, all four of the original directors. Um, now, we weren't able to watch, like I said, the 30 or so films that are officially done with 95 or the many others which weren't accepted by the four original founders, but claim to be Dogma 95 films. Um, but uh, there are many others if you wish to check out on your own. The first 34, I believe, are on the Dogma website were found on um, Wikipedia. Whereas others, you can just go to Vimeo or YouTube and look up Dogma 95 and find a lot of really, really great films. Um, so, um, following that up, um, I think what's interesting about this movement is that the four men who really founded the movement, who, like we said, are Soren Kajcikson, Christian Lavery, Lars Wunscher, and Thomas Vinneberg, each only made one Dog 95 film and then really returned to what they were doing before, which for Soren and Kyle Jacobson was making commercials, being a relatively successful uh, independent filmmaker. For Christian Levering, it was, again, being a successful Danish filmmaker, although I don't think as much outside of Denmark, I'm not sure. Um, although he did do The Salvation, which I kind of like. Um, a few years ago. Um, and for Launcher, going back to making weird experimental films, although not experimental in the same way as Dogma 95, many of them later featured big budgets and bigger actors, um, like Breaking the Waves did. And then for Thomas Vinneberg, he ended up following up the celebration with a film which is not very good um, called it's all about love um, and stars Joaquin Hicks, Sean Penn, and Claire Danes, uh, which I think is fascinating to really revert from this whole underground actors thing to make this huge $10 million film with biggest actors in the world and just kind of fall apart, you know? Um, but anyway, I went on to recover and make some really great films. I love Far From Manning Craft. Mountain Crowd and Another Round, both of which are also extremely different than Celebration. But 
the point is, is that this film movement really only lasted amongst these four men for about seven years, and all their films will stay in perpetuity. The movement itself was pretty short-lived, and I think inherently so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's uh, pretty fascinating, is that uh, they promise, again, in the Java Manifesto, to put the whole before the work, and I guess you could say that's the one thing they kind of succeeded in, is that the whole of the movement lived on for a long time after mm-hmm. each of these directors abandoned it. And that, you know, of those four original films, uh, only two really still have any major following in the idiots in the celebration. Oh, uh, I think it had um, like but I think it had a huge impact on uh how people are filming today uh, with the uh, whole like handheld uh, camera situation. I don't think we saw a lot of that before Dogma 95. I mean, you probably have some examples, but for me, I feel like it started becoming more of a thing after Dogma 95 and even just like, you know, what were you going to say? But I think, I think the difference is, is that um, the use of filmmaking now is more about, which they do discuss, uh, the, the democratic <laughs> the democratization of filmmaking, you know, that you can't afford to buy a camera, you can't film something. And I think that kind of would have come into place whether or not uh, that exists. You don't really see him yeah. in Hollywood films, you know, for the most part, other than found footage films. In which actually found footage yeah. films might be the because, best example uh, of following Dogma 95. What was it? Um, in all honesty. Yeah, I mean, I just think it, it really, like, I mean, films are going to be made either way, but I did see whenever I would type in Dogma 95, I saw a lot of, like, student filmmakers trying to mimic Dogma 95 movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it has a huge impact in that way that it's no you're fine way, and I think it's I'm sorry I should cut you off I, I, I agree with uh, yeah like you said that impact and I think that as a film student I think it's interesting to set up these boundaries for yourself um, and kind of push past them and I think a lot of uh, Rancher's work specifically, is really about setting up boundaries and then pushing past them to make a film. Um, you know, like the uh, Dogtown uh, that he made um, is about, uh, is it Dog? Yeah. I always say Dogtown. It's not Dogtown. Dogtown is the one about skaters. Dog. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. what is it? Dog, uh, Dogville. Dogville. Um, you know, he sets up this whole soundstage and then films the movie there, or something like his documentary that um, he made, uh, which is uh, The Five Obstructions, I believe. Um, 
And that's about setting up these five uh, difficult like situations to make a film uh, and make it harder and harder on yourself. And I think that's something writers are always really focused on. And as a filmmaker, I think it's kind of fun to focus on and making making something through different circumstances. No, not really. Do you want to uh, do you want to talk a little about the uh, new German cinema for the next episode? Yeah. Sure. Why not? Uh, hopefully, if you guys liked that at all, uh, we're gonna do another episode. Whether you did not, you can choose to listen or not. But we're still gonna keep doing it. Um, we're gonna do our next episode on new German cinema which was a movement in Germany that lasted about 20 years um, and turned out a litany of filmmakers. Uh, some of my favorites are Wim Wenders and Werner Fassbender and Werner Herzog, although there is a bunch I have not seen, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but that's going to be on the next episode. Um, and we're going to talk about the movement and how it affected uh, how it large and uh, yeah. Sure, we uh, I, I have no idea how to sign off, but uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I hope you guys keep listening. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Cool. All right. With that, uh, we're going to hit you with the uh, end theme song. So, you know. so here we go. Thanks for listening. And uh, until next time. <laughs> on far from a film scholar. <laughs> <laughs>